leadership. It's an evergreen need in business, but leadership is also undergoing a metamorphosis today. Our guest has been examining a new and bold segment of leaders, those who are making moves that she describes as oddly counterintuitive, undeniably successful, and downright fascinating. So how can you break free from conventional thinking that might be holding you back as a leader? It's Sarah Kennedy, author of the new book, Leadership Unchained, Defy Conventional Wisdom for Breakthrough Performance, on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. One, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday competitive advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. This episode is brought to you in part by my new book. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. It launches September the 1st. We're just getting the digital knobs and switches fully installed for pre-orders, so I'll keep you posted. That book exposes some commonly held assumptions about messaging and messengers that, as it turns out, are no longer true if they ever were in the first place. Which brings us to our conversation today with an expert on the problems of conventional leadership and management wisdom. Our guest, Sarah Kennedy, is a keynote speaker, LinkedIn learning instructor, and author. She didn't start out that way. Like many of us, Sarah came to see her distinctive skills and calling while life was in full motion. As she was climbing the corporate ladder, she kept noticing how the most successful people weren't necessarily the ones with the most refined skills or highest IQs. Rather, those who advanced showed the capacity to collaborate, communicate, and to influence others. Another thing was going on at the time, too. Sarah was being approached consistently by colleagues, subordinates, and even superiors, asking her advice about career challenges and ways to raise their personal market value. So Sarah made her own professional change. I first learned about Sarah and her work from a prior guest on this podcast, Patty DiNucci. If you've heard Patty, you'll remember her. She is the intentional networker. And certainly living up to that moniker by introducing all of us to you, Sarah. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great to have you here, Sarah. You have a new book, Leadership Unchained, great title, Defy Conventional Wisdom for Breakthrough Performance. And just as a a brief intro to that, in my experience, the management part of managing the message cannot be overstated. You know, it's not all about a fluffy vision or a snappy slogan. In order for the organization to really embrace your priorities and vision and to share that consistently with others, I find leaders have to do a few basic things. They have to simplify and clarify the message. They have to model it, do it themselves for others in the organization. And then they also have to coach and encourage others to do it themselves. So I find it 
very timely to have you on the podcast, especially with your view that a lot of conventional leadership wisdom is wrong. You have specific mental shifts that you recommend for today's leaders, but I have to ask you, Sarah, before we start, were there specific leaders who prompted your thinking and inspired the book? There absolutely were. But before I share that, I want to make just a clarifying point here in that conventional wisdom can be wrong under certain circumstances. I want to say that it's really more about knowing when to use conventional wisdom and knowing when to defy it. I think that's the real key. It's a matter of striking a balance and also being able to unchain yourself, if you will, from some of the things that you knew to be conventional classic wisdom. And I just wanted to clarify that point for your listeners. Good. And I think especially when we get toward the end of the conversation, we might talk about some areas about, as you say, how can you know what part of conventional wisdom applies, maybe needs to be applied with some buffing around the edges, and what you need to unchain yourself from. Yeah. You asked me about the leaders who prompted my thinking and inspired this. And interestingly enough, I'm fortunate enough to be sort of at the the front row of observing leaders as they deal with their day-to-day challenges. And so as as a keynote speaker, for example, I often make it a practice to reach out to three to five leaders in the organization. It's something that I do prior to my engagement. And I like to just have a conversation with the group and ask what their most significant challenges are. What is it that would be helpful in the realm of the topic that I'm going to be discussing? And, and granted, it's it's customarily leadership and getting traction, uh, making their jobs more more meaningful and more manageable. And so It's the leaders that I talk to every day, whether it's prepping for a keynote, whether it's in some of the coaching work that I do that inspired me because I saw that these leaders were facing unpredictable, uncertain, and always on do more environments. And some of the things that they knew worked in the past were no longer giving them traction. And so it became very clear to me that that's why we needed sort of a new set of leadership practices or one that seems to some to be counterintuitive. And you're based in Austin, Texas, which is a very hot business area, a lot of entrepreneurial activity. You probably get to see a lot from that base. I know you serve clients in lots of different areas, but there must be a great energy and a great yearning for a leadership advice and counsel uh, there around the Austin area. It is. And the hotbed of technology, Dell, is here in my backyard, so to speak. And they are and have been a good client of mine. And that organization is, you know, running faster than than they can keep up. And so I'm often working with leaders there that uh, very sharp, very entrepreneurial, very innovative but they are trying to get traction in some of the things that they've used and done before that are no longer working. You talk, Sarah, about a set of six mental shifts that define modern leadership thinking and address those in turn in the book. And the first one, and I bet you're around this a lot there, not only in Austin, but with the other clients that you serve, the other groups to which you speak. The first one you call the age-old bias for action. And 
I guess you know, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, people are busy. They want to do things. I looked at the Dwight Eisenhower quote that's often shared in a lot of other people's speaking and coaching. He said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. So the fact that you do need to think about what you're going to be doing and not just have activity. And Sarah, I do also think about my dad, who was a real small town entrepreneurial type, sometimes would say, let's do something even if it's wrong. So I'm not sure that the bias for action is always the best thing. So where are the areas where you see that that desire to do something might lead leaders astray? Yeah. And so there again, this is a work in progress for me because bias for action is alive and well and kicking for me as an individual. It's something that I prided myself on. And I was rewarded for when I was in management, right? Quick, decisive action. You know, that was the mark of a leader. The military uses it as its moniker. You know, last thing we want people to do is hesitate in battle, right? So it it absolutely can be a good thing. But in today's landscape, I think it has its limitations. And I think the best way I can talk about that is to share just a really quick story with you. A year ago, I was asked to help facilitate a leadership retreat for a group of executives. And as part of that retreat, there was a business simulation that took place outdoors. So think of it as a business simulation, which was really more like a scavenger hunt for executives, (laughs) except for in this case, the executives were to find certain points among trails Some were rigorous trails, others more moderate, and the points had a monetary value associated with them. And so the name of the game for each of these executives was to amass as many points as they could within a certain time frame on these somewhat complex and varying trails. I was assigned a group of four executives, and they were competing with other pods of executives, and they had two hours to prepare their strategy before this event took place. They were given the map. They were given some trail hints. They were given a compass. And again, two hours to prepare. And they briefed me on their strategy, which was very airtight. They assigned somebody to be their guru for the compass. Somebody else was to take charge of the trail hints. And one of their biggest plans was to stick together. And the whistle blew, start the process, and I probably don't need to tell you what happened. But essentially, I had, you know, one executive I was watching run to one tree far up the trail, convinced that this is where their point of contact was. I had another executive and she was off near a running stream because she felt she got a jump on reading the hint and making meaning of something along the stream. And I'm observing this, right? My role is to simply observe and ready this for conversation. My point is that their strategy went out the window because it is so ingrained in so many of us, especially in corporate, that we take immediate action. And being in the timed circumstance, I think that elevated the pressure even more. 
And so what was interesting is after about, I would say, probably 25 minutes of this where they tried to stick to their strategy, but then would disperse. And then they would try to stick to their strategy and disperse. They finally said they were going to stick to their strategy, stay together as a group. And they then started to get more traction. They could see the benefit of, you know, really taking their time and reflecting and trying to put the pieces together of everything they had. And so when we talked about it, it was an interesting kind of aha moment for them that, that, that this is what happens to them constantly, not as just individuals, but within their culture, there was a tendency for this kind of thing to happen. Initiatives, projects, meetings, you know, how many times do we go to meetings and great ideas come up? And the minute we walk out the door, we're back to putting out fires. So those ideas never take root. They are flames that simply burn out and missed opportunities, if you will. So bias for action is something that I think we need to balance in this day and age. And and I say that because we are consuming so much data, whether it's what we're reading, whether it's what we're hearing in the meetings we attend or the events that we attend, that in order for us to make meaning of this or to separate the wheat from the chaff or to find connections in all of this data, we need to take a strategic pause. And this isn't mindfulness. This isn't, you know, spending 30 minutes to an hour a day or a week on meditating. This is literally spending time letting everything you've consumed marinate and percolate so that you can make these connections. You can leverage the new technology that you've read about or that is presented to you. So we're actually doing a lot when we're doing nothing, so to speak. (laughs) So that is sort of one of the top in the first chapter of my book. But, you know, we we know it is a good thing and, and it has its place. It's interesting as you were describing that exercise that you did on the retreat, that there was enough time in that exercise for the group to run run around, kind of get away from plan, but then yes. realize that they had gotten off plan to come back, settle in and do it again. So maybe oftentimes we assume that there's not enough time to do the planning and right. to take a very intentional approach to what we're doing. I'm reminded of there is, and I believe you may have cited this in the book as well. There's been an assumption of, for example, bringing new products to market at an organizational level this thing called first mover advantage, that if you can get to market before anyone else, you can establish that position in consumers' minds. You can basically get far enough in front that uh, you're going to have some uh, sustainable advantage, at least for a while. But the evidence of first mover advantage really isn't there, is it? No, not necessarily, because as we know, consumers are, they aren't very loyal. So if you're first to market, but your system has bugs or your software isn't exactly what somebody's looking for, the minute your competitor comes out with something, consumers won't hesitate to jump ship. And so, yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of a lot of evidence and a lot of groundwork in in this idea of of taking more strategic pauses. Another one of the mental shifts that you talk about is about 
And I think it refers, Sarah, to really how you best get your plans together in the first place, which is actively seeking out cognitive diversity. And I find this interesting as well. There's a lot of evidence that the best ideas come from unusual places, maybe from outside your industry, people who have different backgrounds, different perspectives. They're not approaching things in the way that they've assumed is the best way to approach it. Is that what you're getting at with seeking out cognitive diversity? It is. And so the mental shift here is that as leaders, we are taught and we try to reach a level of expertise, right? And that's kind of what we know. You, you put in the hours, you have the experience in the years, and you've amassed either credentials or certifications, and you've earned the right to be an expert in your industry. And so you rely on your perspective. You know, on the one hand, that's a good thing. And then here again is the balance because things are coming at us so quickly that your individual perspective is going to limit your opportunities. And so I say, move outside of your own thought, disrupt your thinking actively, look for ways for others to question your expertise and intelligence. And and again, this sounds counterintuitive, but I think the more we do that from an active standpoint, the richer our knowledge base and our realm of ideas can become. The, The pool of ideas are just that much bigger. And so I tell people, you know, purposely find somebody within your organization who may not agree with your thoughts or your perspective and ask them to coffee and and have them sort of challenge your thinking, because that is the way that we're going to grow. That's the way that we're going to see these amazing connections that we may not have seen before. So it's about reaching across the organization. And I, you know, I talk a lot in the book about how we used to say that in order to avoid this idea of groupthink, managers should be careful not to hire like-minded individuals or people from the same culture or background. And so, you know, I think that managers may think that they're doing enough to get diverse perspectives. But it takes a real active effort because, you know, you can have a, a team of completely different cultures represented. But if everybody on the team thinks alike, you're not taking advantage of the cognitive diversity. So that was my intent around this idea of, you know, letting go of the need to be an expert. And I would imagine because some of our listeners and some some managers and leaders around you know their teams the people inside their organization may be may have been in that box for a while yes. and it's difficult to sometimes to get a really fresh idea and i suspect that a lot of the leaders that you see that are really effective and and do come up with some fresh ideas they're active about it as well so we see you know for example corporations and associations they get outside speakers with very different perspectives to come to their meetings you have people that make it a point to read outside their industry or maybe even read outside of business or they listen to podcasts of different areas and the like as, as different ways to bring in some fresh approaches, you know, considering their team, but also just their, their own mindset, right? 
That's exactly right. And you mentioned, you know, each of my chapters has a way to operationalize these perspectives, right? So, so what do you do as a leader to, you know, not be a prisoner of your own perspectives? And there's a section in each chapter that gives you some real, you know, operational type suggestions. And you've mentioned several right there that I have mentioned, you know, invite in modern thinkers to, to shake things up within your team or within your organization and read uh, journal and, and, and articles that are outside your industry because they may be using a technology or a process that has application to your industry. So absolutely. That gets us to another of the mental shifts that you talk about. You mentioned how we're all just drowning in data. Yes. And, and, and so, and the analytics should not be ignored, but I also find that looking at the analytics only as a way to make decisions, it probably means that you can begin to hone in and do exactly what you're doing today more efficiently. It doesn't necessarily point toward doing something different that may be even better. You call it welcoming the insights of soft intelligence. How does that come into play? So this is interesting. Again, when I'm with leaders, I see that most people are, are drinking from the fire hose. Big data is very sexy right now. Everybody is on board with big data. But frankly, I'm noticing that some leaders, again, they don't know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. They don't know the source of the data. They need to understand the data. So in order to do that, they request more data. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's this, you know, snowball effect, if you will. And I think what's happened in some cases is that we can lose sight of the soft intelligence, which is what are the nuances? What's the why behind the data? So for example, when we do customer analytics or customer feedback, you know, we're giving them some sort of a, of a Likert scale on, you know, one to five, or, you know, we like the net promoter score or whatever it is we're using. We lose sight of some of the thinking that goes into those rankings, right? So we need to get out behind, you know, from behind our desks as a leader. And whether it's with our teams and whether it's with customers, we need to start asking questions face-to-face and uncovering some of the why behind what we do. And that to me is the the danger of this, of, of big, big data and this idea that, you know, we put it in its perspective, but we balance it with soft intelligence. And the story that I thought was so compelling around this was from a woman. Her name was Trisha Wang, and she worked for Nokia back in 2009 when they were the world's largest cell phone manufacturer. And she was working for the company in their research department as a technology ethnographer. So that's like a cultural anthropologist. And at the time, her job was to identify market trends and potential new customers and doing that by analyzing, you know, the behaviors within that culture. So she immersed herself that year in studying the habits of low income consumers in China. And so she moved to China and she worked as a street vendor selling dumplings. She even went to internet cafes on her time off. And she listened to the people in the internet cafes. She watched 
their technology habits. She asked questions. It was a real boots on the ground approach. And she came up with some pretty profound insight. And that was that at the time, these Chinese migrants would have given half of everything they earned in a month just to earn a smartphone. And this insight she thought was profound. And she took this information back to the the leaders of Nokia because they were continuing their strategy of building very high-end smartphones with all the bells and whistles. And she's submitting to them that the market in China could be, you know, just blown wide open if they were willing to shift their strategy somewhat to make lower end phones. Well, needless to say, her small data set compared to the millions of data sets they had from a sheer data standpoint, what they thought was too small. They didn't want to rely on her. I think she spent at least a year there if not more. They didn't want to rely on her soft intelligence. And then we all know what happened to Nokia, right? So she has had experiences since then, and she talks about this quite a bit. In fact, she has a really good TED talk about it. She calls it thick data. And that's the data in between what we see as the facts and figures. That's an interesting story. And for whatever reason, Sarah, it reminds me of something that is more of the mundane consumer products world. And this was a, a number of years ago it was with Lysol, the spray disinfectant. And there was a time in which looking at the same uh, metrics of awareness and market share, you know, Lysol dominated that whole category. But the leadership there was noticing they just weren't getting the level of sales growth that they thought that they should there at the grocery store level. And they did something uh, similar to what you just described. They actually hired a small group of anthropologists and found some consumers who are <laughs> willing you know, th- to accept a little bit of money and uh, allow these anthropologists to come in and and hang with them at their house a little bit and like, look in the cabinets mm-hmm. and talk to them about how they kept the house clean. And one thing they had discovered, and message manager listeners, you probably, if not now, at some point in your history at home, there's probably a cabinet beneath a bathroom sink or a kitchen sink (laughs) that becomes this repository (laughs) over time. And things get shoved into the back. And what these anthropologists found, and it was the benefit of not doing, not just relying upon the hard data of sales at the grocery level, But actually going in and spending some face-to-face time, Sarah, as you talked about, they found that almost everybody had one or more cans of Lysol and they'd all gotten shoved (laughs) to the back of the cabinet. People forgot they had it. And so they crafted a new advertising message, basically designed to remind people that they had it. There were lots of uses for the Lysol. And it's like, go ahead and use what you have so that you can buy some more. But it took... The realization of saying, let's find out there's something different beyond the store level sales data that must be going on and and being able to get a little bit more of that soft intelligence that you talk about. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we see it in even the data that comes to us when it's presented to us, whether it's presented in the form of a report or an executive briefing, the person who's 
presenting the data also has his or her own filter and influence. And that can be another problem of just accepting the data without doing your own personal work in trying to uncover how was the data collected, who was in the data set, those sorts of things. So, so getting more involved instead of just accepting the data as it is. That's a great segue into another one of the mental shifts that you talk about, which is letting go of tasks and deliverables and routines that don't fit what you need. I would presume that reports might even be part of that as well, Sarah. Yes, absolutely. So I tell people that their habits and practices can be getting in the way of their getting traction, right? And what happens is we become so accustomed to our to-do lists and so accustomed to the meetings that fill our calendars that I ask leaders to stop and think and look at everything that's on their to-do list or calendar and make them earn their rightful place. It's like having everything re-audition to make it as one of the actors to your play, right? (laughs) And it's the same concept. We really need to think as much about what we're going to stop doing as what we're going to do. And I think when I have leaders go through this exercise, it can be pretty profound And it's interesting because going back to the very first point about a bias for action, and I encourage leaders to make an unbreakable appointment with themselves, that strategic pause we talked about. And so as you can imagine, eyes rolling, laughing, who has the time, right? Well, when we talk about their to-do list and their projects and their meetings, and I really have them scrub their lists and their meetings and think about, do I really need to attend this meeting? Why? Am I afraid I'm going to miss out or something's going to be said? Is there somebody else that can go in my stead? Am I doing this report to make somebody else comfortable? Is anybody still reading this report? Is this project or initiative something that I worked really hard to get approved, but it's no longer moving us forward? Do I need to reconsider it? There's all kinds of things that we're chained to, so to speak. And so I tell leaders that it's just as important to spend time releasing themselves from these routines and these uh, to-do lists, so to speak, so that they have more time for strategic pauses. They have more time to be present with those that report to them and, and their colleagues. So absolutely, that's a, that's a very important mind shift. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast, and I think is really important, is making sure that that organizational leader is also a message leader, that they're very active in terms of not only what they say, but what they model, what they're doing outside and inside the organization. And you talk about what you call defeating the drag on communication, and it probably gets to modeling and meeting and and those areas as well. Where do you see in leaders today to be the drags on communication and their effectiveness as a message leader? The practice, the, the new habit, the modern leader habit here is to not necessarily communicate to inform and impress and instead communicate to engage and inspire. And I think that especially with more and more 
of the younger generation. I'm not going to say millennials because we're already on to the next generation, but millennials in particular, they want to be inspired. They want the why behind the communication. They want to be informed in a way that what's their appetite that's textured, that's meaningful. And so Again, we've used traditional approaches. We, we break out a, a deck, a PowerPoint deck, or we break out the bullet points and we break out the big data, the hard data. And we use spreadsheets and charts and all kinds of stuff to convert our knowledge or to share information or to cascade strategy. And so what I'm urging modern leaders to do is to think first about the experience. What is the experience you want to create in a message? What do you want people to do and feel as a result of the experience? So is there a better way to translate this data? Can I bring in a prop, as silly as it sounds? Can I bring in something that's an everyday item whether it be a stapler or a paper clip? And can I compare the project or the strategy to that in a way that makes sense? Can I use a metaphor? Better yet, can I open with a story, one that's more personal and grabs their attention and is leading them to make a very strong and compelling case for a cascaded strategy, for example? So, thinking a lot differently about how we're sharing information. And again, in part because we're inundated. And in order to rise above the noise, I really think it's incumbent upon leaders to step out of the routine and step into something that is going to visually and metaphorically and experientially draw and engage people in. Sarah, there's one other bit of baggage that you talk about here. And you and I are both experts and in many ways, leaders and and managers listening to this, they are experts as well. That can be a trap. A few days ago, as we were recording uh, this episode, there was an article, we'll link to it in the show description, that showed an excruciating series of stories about how awful experts can be at forecasting and predictions. And that there are certain kinds of experts you can get very deep and narrow. And I think it constricts our ability to see changes in the environment and to see new ways of doing things. There are some other experts that kind of incorporate different areas. You say approach task with the spirit of a beginner uh, as a way to break out of that expert trap. Where do you see that working? Yeah, you know, so this one reminds me of the whole notion of the black belt, right? Until a few years ago, I wasn't, I think I was like most people, you you make the assumption that the black belt in karate represents the highest level of talent, of expertise, of training. It is the pinnacle, it is the ultimate, right? And it takes a lot of years of training to reach that distinction. But what I learned is that color actually represents a belt that's soiled with experience, but it signifies an endless capacity 
for more knowledge. So really in that distinction, it's about an endless journey. It's, it's about the leader who wants to continually evolve, right? They've never, to them, it's not a matter of reaching the pinnacle or of being the most in the know person in the room. It is about the person who not only becomes a teacher and a mentor, but at the same time stays a learner. And so that is the sort of what I mean about this idea of breaking free from the expert trap, right? Because it's those leaders who always see themselves as learners that are the ones that are going to evolve constantly to just this higher level transformative place. Agreed. Sarah, early on in this, you made it a point to say, it's not that all the old rules are obsolete. You just have to be a little discerning here about conventional or traditional management thinking uh, and those elements that are still relevant. So what are some of those areas that you say, hey, there are some foundational things that uh, maybe they you take them as is, maybe you use some language or some specific practices that are different for the modern day, but that you find to be so foundational that they should persist? Yeah. I mean, I, it was the last chapter of my book and I just felt that I couldn't, I couldn't end the book without a discussion on some of the classic wisdom, leadership wisdom that will never go out of style, in my opinion. And whether they were relevant 50 years ago or today, I think they will continue to be sort of the, the hallmark of great leaders. And, you know, I'm not going to mention anything that's that nobody's ever heard of, but I think nevertheless, they're very important to keep them as sort of your North Star, as your guiding principles, despite what's happening in the economy or despite the fact that we're in an always on push harder world. And those are things like being present. In fact, I think that's become more important because we are so distracted, but it's the leader who can be present, who can put away the distractions and be there for the person that's in front of them, be it one-to-one or one-to-many. And not just because that helps with connecting with others, but again, how are we going to begin to consume and understand these mass advancements in technology, for example, if we cannot be fully present. So there's there's several advantages. We can absorb more information and the full scope of things when we're more present. And of course, absolutely the ability to connect with others. Grace and humility. I think those will never go out of style. I think the leader who is able to admit mistakes, who is both confident and humble at the same time, you know, again, despite the stress of today's work is, is, is a leader that will live on forever in the minds and hearts of people. The idea of inspiring others and developing others is going to be and is continues to be a critical aspect of, of modern day leaders. It's no longer about just getting ahead yourself, just being a delivery and results oriented leader, but rather growing other leaders Integrity, that speaks for itself. I don't think I need to explain that, but being a leader with integrity. And then finally, a leader that can contribute at a higher level, 
is concerned with more than their own advancement and thinks about the good of the team and of the company, not just their own self-serving pursuits. So those are the types, in my opinion, that are evergreen. They are here today and they're going to be here tomorrow. That's a great set of evergreen principles and also your uh, areas of looking to make that mental shift and develop a more modern approach to to leadership. Sarah, a lot of great interconnected ideas. Is there a useful starting point for leaders and aspiring leaders to take a look at what they're doing today and figure maybe what their next step should be? Yeah, that's a great point. I just finished building out an uh what I call sort of a self-assessment or self-audit where folks can can answer a number of questions in each of these to kind of get a sense of where they fall on the spectrum of, are they rigid to one side of that mindset or, or are they more open to the newer side of that mindset? That will be available shortly. But in the interim, I, I would say, you know, look at these and sort of get a sense of, of where you think you're most inclined to be chained down. That's how I thought of myself as a leader, frankly. I looked at how all of these were practices that I would do, and I was, in fact, rewarded for many of them, and which ones I clung to probably more so, and still today. And that's where I start. For me, I said I was a work in progress for bias for action. That's where I start. And that's where I'm trying to work mostly on developing and and shifting my mindset to take more strategic pauses, to make unbreakable appointments with myself. And then I think the others will fall. So for example, to free up time to do that, I'm taking a more rigorous look at my to-do list and what's on my calendar every week. I'm asking myself a set of questions. Is this moving me and my team forward? Is this something somebody else can do? And by the way, I have those, those filtering questions in that chapter. So I think it's just looking at these different topics and starting where you feel you're most inclined to be clinging to an older habit or or conventional wisdom and not trying to do all of these at once, taking one or two of them. And then as you get better at incorporating that habit and shifting that practice, adding then more of them. Sarah, I liked your language around auditioning (laughs) the things that you have on your list or the activities that you have today. So where can listeners find out more about this book, Leadership Unchained, and your speaking and coaching and all the other great ideas that you have for the modern leader? Certainly. So uh, my website, Sarah, that's no H, sarahcanaday.com. And it's just like Canada with a Y at the end. So sarahcanaday.com. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And, you know, the book is available on Amazon. It is also just now available on Audible for those who prefer to consume the material in that delivery mode. So, yes, I I would be happy to connect with any of your listeners and continue the conversation. Wonderful. Sarah, really appreciate you joining us here on the Manager Message podcast, and we will keep tabs on all of that, that coming assessment and all the other ways to Uh, learn more about modern leadership thinking. Thanks for being here. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And my thanks to you for joining us here on the Manager Message podcast. If you're getting value from the podcast and 
what we're doing here, then please make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe. And please take a brief moment to rate and review the podcast. The five-star reviews are the ones that matter. It makes it easier for other professionals to find us and to join the fun. I was just checking. We now have subscribers from the U.S., United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, Ireland, and New Zealand, among others. There's another free resource that you can use for your business, your organization. It's called the Message Manager Memo. It is a weekly email with practical tips, a short read. You'll actually enjoy seeing it in your inbox. You can sign up at my website, jimcar.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. One of the other ways that I'm serving professionals, members of associations, corporations of, of various types is through professional speaking. I have a keynote address called Loud, Clear, and Growing. Now businesses stand out through their everyday messages. I always tailor the keynotes according to the audience and their needs and their challenges and their opportunities at any particular time. also have work that I do for breakout sessions, working sessions around how to manage the message yourself for what you're trying to accomplish professionally and also how you can equip your team or entire organization to do the same. And the best is I get a chance to talk with you directly. If you have ideas for the podcast or the message manager memo, perhaps you know of an association or a company that would be a great fit to have me visit as a professional speaker. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. We can set up a time to talk by phone if you like. Until next time, message managers, thanks again for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.